You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, and welcome to the May 30th edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm really excited today to have Robert Hoagland, a self-described chronicler of CDR. Beyond that, he has become a thought leader through his insightful and widely shared blog, Marginal Carbon, his work with the CDR fund Milky Wire, and many other roles as a climate advisor. We're going to start off with a conference that Robert and I recently attended, Carbon Unbound in New York City. Uh, where he walked away with some really interesting observations that he shared through his Substack. Um, one of the takeaways from he brought was the current was the current CDR landscape and its future tra- trajectory. While his post outlined many challenges, the title "Cautiously Optimistic Removers" gives an idea of the upbeat attitude shared by many attendees. Um, The CDR sector faces significant challenges, particularly concerning scaling up to meet the demands of an increasingly carbon conscious world. Robert's thoughts reflections offer insight into the sector's pressing concerns from certification standards and scaling hurdles to the crucial role of public engagement. Today, we'll dive into his eight observations from the conference and also ask him about a few other things that have popped up in the last few days that um, I think anyone who listens to Carbon Removal Newsroom is probably familiar with. But let's start by talking about cautiously optimistic removers. So thanks, Robert, for joining. We're super happy to have you. Great to be here. Really excited. Well, first, first off, tell us like what your experience was at Carbon Unbound. How did you enjoy it? It was wonderful to be there. And this ecosystem haven't met that much. And especially since it's spread across the world. So there was a lot of people I've never seen in real life before. So I was very excited to to be there and meet everyone. And I think it really had a, a wonderful vibe. Um, and, you know, everyone is, uh, feels like great people that are there for the right reasons. It doesn't feel like, uh, um, you know, it's it's a business that attracts people who are just in it for the money or or have kind of other motives so it's it's really people who want to get together and and build this new sector basically from the ground up so that can play this pivotal role in, in helping to reach global climate targets so um you know one thing that i found interesting and you highlighted in your post was the widely shared concerns about the lack of demand for carbon removal and i think at nori at least uh we've always considered supply to be the place that where we'll be constrained, not demand. So what, you know, what can you tell us about that? And why do you think that is the current situation? Yes. So the number one issue, I think, is actually the, uh, the lack of demand. So the, the, the supply demand thing is a little bit confused because it depends on what you, how you look at it. So if you look at tons that already have been removed and are in the ground, yes, there are. That's a supply constraint, actually. But uh, it's a chicken and egg situation where uh, you really need to to have that sort of demand lined up before the tons are in the ground. And, and that demand is not the, sufficiently there, although we'll talk about some of the new developments. But what we've been seeing, uh, I also help run this CDR FYI, where it tracks all the, the, the transactions in, in this durable carbon removal space, is that the number of buyers that go out and make meaningful purchases is quite small. So in 2022, there was only 16 corporates that bought more than a thousand tons, for example. 
Um, and that number is growing, but not as fast as, as we'd like to. So, and, and also the number of tons purchased by, by most of them is, is still quite small. And we talk a bit about the Milky Way Fund, but we had a call for proposals with, with 117 CDR companies sent in an application, uh, and the, the overall quality was really high. But one thing that really stood out was that 70% of those haven't made any sales. And those that did make sales had quite small sales. So uh, many companies have access to a bit of funding, maybe some some seed funding, et cetera, and, and, and sort of can be operational. But if they're going to build their first plants and especially build their second plant, which might be bigger, there needs to be uh, upfront buyers that can uh, sign off-take agreements or, or make pre-purchases. So... Yeah, very encouraged about some of the latest developments that we'll talk about, but there needs to be especially a much larger number of companies that goes in and, and support its, uh, the sector. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it more in detail, but it is an interesting chicken and egg because there's a, you know there's the risk of buying something that you don't know that it's going to be delivered and how do you, one, account for it, two, how do you pay for it as a demand, you know, on the demand side and, um, and people are impatient too, I think is another thing, right? They want results today and waiting 10 years can be problematic, but we'll yep. dive into that a little bit more when we talk about some of the developments that have happened in the last week. Um, the other thing that actually I found interesting, and I think there was a little bit of a debate around this at the conference was the rushing to certify carbon removal. I think at least from what I heard like there are some people who very much want to get started on certification, but then there are others who are arguing for not certifying. So um, one, if you could explain to our listeners some of the nuances around that, and two, tell us why you don't think we should rush or the industry shouldn't rush to certify carbon removal. There are a lot of nuances to, to this topic where the methods used in carbon removal are so different uh, and have different sort of scientific levels of understanding of how they work. So if you do direct air capture and store it geologically underground, there's not too much unknown about that. The, the unknowns is how to do it cheaply, basically, but that you yet you capture carbon and store it underground, it's, it's, uh, it's not that difficult to, to measure. Uh, so creating a standard and certification for that is, is not, not at all difficult. I and mean, we can move ahead with it. But for some other uh, carbon removal methods, such as enhanced rock weathering and also regenerative agriculture for, for soil um, uh, removal, where the, the science is still kind of not that developed on exactly how this works, how much carbon is stored, how quickly, um, and we need to um, develop more sort of knowledge about exactly how to measure this and to account for this. And in some cases, we're not 100% sure it will work at all <laughs> so like unless you you do know that for sure you can't certify a ton like it, it's going to create immense harm if like a few years down the line companies have been buying lots of tons that have been certified you know this is a ton a real ton it has the certification stamp and then it turns out whoops uh, the new scientific development here showed that like actually we only got 10 percent of the volume that, that was certified or maybe even zero uh, in some cases and we have to avoid that so i think we can still get started and i mean we can do enhanced rock weathering we, we can do things like where we don't have full knowledge also ocean but this should be kind of more um done 
with the nuance communicated that we're not completely sure how this works. We're not completely sure how many tons this would remove. Like we estimate that maybe this is the amount of tons that will be removed, but that doesn't, you, you can't certify that in my world. Maybe for other people, certify means something else, but I think that in the general public's eye, it would mean that we're sure about it. So you could say that we're following best practice and we think that this is likely to remove this much, but once it's certified and you start using it maybe to fulfill commitments, you really have to have a high level of scientific proof. So yeah, I know some people that makes me unpopular with some people, but but that's okay. Like it's, uh, I think they also would agree on on the need for keeping the public trust. Uh, so we really need to have to be tread careful here. I mean, I think that also plays into one the demand question, right? If you don't know what you're buying or what it's worth or what how it applies to you, it makes it even harder. So. Uh, from what I think you said, basically, at this point, the only place where you may feel comfortable with certification is a closed system like DAC, where it's pretty clear, or are there I other I wouldn't ones? go that far to say that it's only, but there are more uncertainties with like a hand-struck weathering and ocean, etc. By sure, I think there's some uncertainties, but the, the level of knowledge is, is larger, and the number of sort of meta-studies from, from like field studies, etc., and um, it, it has advanced a bit longer, so like you might be able to to feel more secure about what that one, for example, and say that uh, eighty percent will remain after hundred years and uh, or something like that. Although there's still questions left to answer, but there's you pass a point where you you could say that we feel now we feel reasonably reasonably uh, sure that we have all the scientific evidence to to be sure that it's at least this much right. that uh, that is removed, and then you can certify that that bit. <laughs> Oh, so much still to understand. Um, another point you made, because we've got to keep moving because we have lots to talk about, is um, you know, money isn't the only thing we need to scale CDR. And I think you've kind of touched on this, but what are other bottlenecks or things that you think are currently hindering CDR growth? And this was also brought up in the conference. I think uh, Agent Corliss by, by Carbon Capture, he mentioned it, that um, it takes a long time just to order components, for example. So it can take several years to, to get the things that you need to build your DAC machines. Uh, so uh, things like that and, and, and access to to skilled people uh, when we scale up could be could become a bottleneck, although it's, it's probably not the biggest bottleneck right now. But and then, of course, I think the biggest issue for the whole grand green transition uh, in, in sort of the developed world is uh, permitting. And how extremely difficult it is to to do that in a past way. And I think the U.S. example with the Inflation Reduction Act really shows how how difficult it is now. Where do you need to build like a, a huge amount of trans transmission lines uh, in addition to the new energy projects, and how extremely difficult that is because it goes across state lines. And I think the last transmission line that was in the news, like a uh, a couple of weeks ago, what was it? It was like 15 years or something more that, that it took to 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 get it on in place. So we, for the whole green transition, we need a kind of permitting reform, and, and that shows that, yeah, it, it will take time to. Uh, um, even if you have a lot of money, you might get stuck. And there's so many renewable energy projects that just are waiting, right? Like the capacity of all those projects that filed applications in the US and in Europe is like so massive, and it's not the capital that stops them. 
Yeah, I think what goes in hand in hand with the permitting is also the community outreach, which I don't think has been very well solved um, either. And so, and the one thing is like a permitted is only enough. It, I mean, it's a baseline, but it's not enough on like the community outreach piece. And I, I think that's another area where the carbon removal community has to get better and build an mm. ecosystem to support different startups. For sure, yeah. Um. So moving on, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the like different policy designs that, you know, we heard kind of mentioned um, at at Carbon Unbound and what your thoughts are on the implications of the various suggestions. State, state support, right? Um, I think the, there's still a lot of uncertainty how, how state support should be designed in the best way to sort of interact with the private market. And my thoughts on this are not fully developed. I, I want to write something about it, but you could at least observe that if the state support is designed in in some ways, it might kill the additionality, for example, of uh, of buying uh, also from the from the private market. If you know that the state will pay for it anyway, uh, for example, and and you just use your uh, your dollars from from buying from a product to um to to lessen the cost from the state's uh, budget, you know, then uh, as in some proposals have, have have been have shown, then sort of why would you buy from that project? Like the state is going to pay for it anyway. Uh, and then there's some foreign issues around like the accounting of tons, like most countries plan to also account for carbon removal tons within their own targets. So their own obligations to remove carbon. And that can have a little bit different uh, implications also depending on how that sort of state support is, is structured. And we see some different uh, alternatives here, like US 45Q is, is a tax credit uh, with also direct payment. It doesn't have a cap either in, in 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 dollars or in tons, so I think you would say it's highly additional. Like you just get more carbon removal um, when you you buy from products that use it. Then you have procurement. Sweden is going to procure Vex tons, for example, and that's what that's what uh, Denmark did as well right now, where is partial payment and um, Sweden it might be full payment. We're not completely sure. But then sort of how, how that is shared with the voluntary market. Now the Danish, Danish example, it's Microsoft going in and, and buying, being the other big buyer aside from the Danish state, but all of it is counted toward Denmark's uh, target. So I, need, I really need to, um, yeah, dig my my teeth into this and, and, and talk to others as well, like what to lay out all the different implications of, of various types of policy support, but we can at least observe some of the potential difficulties and thorny questions. One thing uh, you said that I thought was really interesting is that, and I'm paraphrasing, but I hope I get it right. Like you think the voluntary carbon markets play a role in sort of the zero to 10 part, and then the government plays a role in the 10 to infinity part. So can you, for the listeners who didn't get to hear you say that, can you kind of explain to them what you when, what your thinking is around that? The private market is quite fast and, and can support new efforts and, and get things that are quite small also started. Just a purchase of like $200,000 can, can mean the world for a new uh, carbon removal company to to go from the lab stage and try their, their, their solution out in the real world. And, and often state support is not uh, designed to do this kind of smaller 
uh, early stage support to to companies. They do R and D support to national labs and and universities, etc., which which helps a lot. But this stage where where companies are are going, just getting formed and then trying out new solutions, I I have seen at least sort of from the um, empirical evidence that we have now is that the private market is better at, at helping those than the state is, and that really widens the playing field. Um, I think we'll still get car removal, even if there's no private buyers, but it's going to be kind of a monoculture, or the risk it's kind of more of a monoculture, and it's not this beautiful meadow with lots of different flowers. Uh, <laughs> so we, we can really, the private market can really help to yeah, get this wide range of, of solutions tested out, and then also de-risked. Uh, maybe you get it to certification, or you get it to, you know, you try it in the real world. And once something is de-risked, and then you, you you can see that, well, we removed 10,000 tons here with this new solution, then it might be eligible for, for state support as well. So the final thing I, uh, or topic I wanted to talk about related to carbon unbound, related to permitting, you know, is that the whole storage of captured CO2 is, is a significant challenge. I mean, for new market entrants, for anybody, right, getting the Class C per six permits. And then in the U.S., you have lots of people who don't want it in their backyard. Um, so how do you think about strategies to address these issues? And is this more of a U.S. issue or are you seeing it more worldwide as different types of uh, companies come online across the world? Yeah, it's hard to get a good understanding of sort of how the negotiations for space in classic wells look like. Uh, so I don't have any particular insights on that, but from what I've heard, it might become difficult for small players that just want to store a few thousand tons, for example. Um, the DAC hubs will uh, likely help, but it's a few years in the future. So I... I do see kind of a, a, a short term to, to midterm, like what are you going to do with your 5,000 tons in, in 2025? That, that might become an issue. Um, and we have concrete. So some of the, the early players are putting it into uh, carbon cure or something like that, um, which you know might work, but it might add cost as well. So it, uh, something that might not be suitable for everyone. Um, so I mean, I mean it, there's no simple solution, but is there a way to ensure that small players get a share of these classic wells? Uh, is there some kind of collaboration in the US and in the, in the, in the EU? It's not called classics, but we still have uh, similar things. Is there some way where a portion of this can be can be set out um, to, to, to get these kind of small players? And then we have a carb fix and, and 4401, which are you know, uh, more innovators in this space. And I think they are more well suited to work with small players. And we, we do see this carb fix just an announcement yesterday that they have a new collaboration with a Norwegian that company. Uh, I'm going to start that up as well. So that could also be an option. Okay, well, we're going to turn now to CDR headlines for the month, really for the last week. Um, but for we touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to come back to it because I think it's so important in, um, that we earlier this month had planetary technologies on our show. I don't know if you saw their presentation at Carbon Unbound, but they kind of talked about the difficulties of attempting a deployment, a small deployment to a test case and you know the public response they face. So 
from your perspective, what do you think companies need to do to win public trust? And how do we as an ecosystem within CDR help build out the resources that these companies need? That's a very telling example. I was quite shocked to hear about <laughs> all the resistance they got from this test. But yeah, it is something that we can see with, with other technologies as well. Like this is definitely not my expertise, right? How to engage with communities in the best way. It's just something that we can observe that, that really needs to be done at an early stage uh, and, and kind of co in, come in and before everything is set down and um, not say that this is going to start next week or, or something like that, but like being being early and, and, and listening to people uh, and sort of avoiding uh, this, this kind of this kind of ways where it becomes like the, the company against the community, et cetera. Like, I think there are experts that have various ways to where you can do community engagement in, in a smart way where people really feel like they're listened to and, and their concerns are taken into account without it becoming kind of a, a town hall screaming at a company representative, for example. But yeah, it's a, I, I would like to learn more also about what type of like practical strategies actually work to do it. Um, I mean, we can more observe that it's really needed so you don't get into a situation where you have a big crowd of protesters that want to stop your projects because that's nothing anyone wants. Yeah, I think I think this is a place where the CDR industry might need to learn from other other groups who have had faced opposition to what they're doing, right? And one thing I keep I've said many times is like the government approval is like the base, it's the floor, it's not the ceiling, and you can't stand behind that and expect the community to accept it, especially something as scary as putting something in your ocean, I guess. Um, mm. You know, I yep. think it's that emotional attachment. So it takes a lot, it's like this weird, to me, this weird dichotomy where it takes a really long time to get the community's trust, but we want to do it so fast. And I don't know if anyone yep. has figured out how to marry those two. Mm -hmm. yeah now we can see it but almost any industrial development right it, mm -hmm. it is quite tricky. it's very tricky yeah but i want to move on to actually some good news which is your organization milky wire recently supported eight cdr organizations you mentioned that you had a whole bunch more apply uh with funding from 10 companies including spotify and klarna so can you give us a little insight into um, how you selected the companies and the announcement and all that? Certainly. So this is the third round, basically, the third time we're, we're selecting products for this Climate Transformation Fund, uh, which also includes uh, products within restoration and protecting of nature, uh, as well as decarbonization, where we support advocacy and policy organizations like Clean and Task Force and, and others. Um, but the CDR part is what we, we talked about now, and the, the eight organizations are, are CDR organizations. And our strategy there is to be uh, as catalytic as possible to really try try to help widen this playing, playing field. I mean, in a similar way that Stripe and then Shopify and Frontiers early pre-purchases have been done as well, uh, where we look at what is the long-term potential of, the, of this solution, sort of not at the price today, but the, the cost uh, at the end of the line and the resource use and, and sort of um, the, the novelty of, of the solution. And then at the technical readiness level and sort of how, how big, how, how, how large is the chance that this potential will actually be fulfilled? And then also at the effect of our support. So is this a well-supported actor already? 
Like, do you have do they have all the money they need to test it out, or or could our support be especially catalytic here? And that's something we put a lot of weight on. So the the organizations supported our uh, early stage in most cases uh, carbon removal solutions, and we we are trying to uh, represent a, a range of solutions, also and not just one type of method. And yeah, it's both biochar and direct air capture and and ocean capture and and has rock weathering and um yeah and, and bikers as well uh and how much are you funding for each of these companies approximately like what's the range so it's a yeah the, the funding that each would would get through the um the contract is, is in total like a couple of hundred thousand a little bit more so in those kind of smaller ranges but it does mean a lot for for especially when you're the first purchaser to to get your your first few hundred or if you first few thousand tons into the ground. And my last question about this, just because I'm curious, you know, to see or how how it differs from like the differentiates from Frontier and Stripe or similar. Like, do you look for them to hit certain milestones to release the money? Or how are how are you thinking about um just the risk around delivery of the carbon mm -hmm. removal credits and how do you manage that? So these are pre-purchases. Uh, where, where it is money paid up front and it's not off take agreements. Um, of course, the, the contracts uh, try to put as much details as possible in it, but it, it's not, uh, and in some cases, it might be that you, you need to, to reach a, a, some kind of threshold before the money is paid out. But normally, it's it's kind of a pre-purchase where we've done a lot of vetting of the company and also their their financial situation right now. Is there is there big business that they're going to default very soon or something like that? Um so we do our due diligence, but we also recognize that, of course, there are some some risks here. Like uh, you might not get everything you paid for, and if you support ten organizations and you think it's like ninety percent chance that they are delivered, then one will default, like by just by kind of expectation. So we don't think any of these will, but if if someone does, that's that's a risk that we are that we know of. But if you're going to support new solutions and if you're going to get and completely new companies off the ground, then you know you have to take risk, and it's similar to like VC investing. But with I think we don't expect ninety percent to fail like an, a VC would. It's a it's, it's, it's sort of turned around. But still, you you need to be to be open about that. And I think Frontier has been as well. I think Nan Ransoft also said that we don't expect all of these to deliver, and that's okay. Um, but uh, it's also different between different methodologies and methods. I mean. The, the very early ones where there's higher technological risk um, and might be a very small company is different from kind of a little bit more established company working with uh, already known solutions. So it definitely differs a lot. And it's something you need to take into account when designing a portfolio as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it it is what it is, right? Risk comes with this territory right now. So, um, but... But you also know, reward, right? So if you're risk, the yeah. first buyer of a new solution that you know is going to lower costs of carbon removal a lot, and you you get that started, like the effect you get of that, like the catalytic effect you had as a funder is huge as well. So like yeah. it's uh, if you avoid risk at all costs, then you 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 lose a lot of impact for sure. For sure, um, I think anyone in this business has to has to be okay with that. Um, so that. There are also a whole slew of announcements about but buyers, which is interesting after going to that convention yeah. just two weeks ago, but $200 mm -hmm. million dollars from JP Morgan to Climeworks, Charm and the Frontier Fund, 
and then Microsoft's Bex purchase. And I think there are more coming. I mean, what do you make of all of these announcements and how does that play into sort of the feeling that you saw when you were reviewing applications that so many companies are not having buyers? Like how, how does that work out in your mind? No, it's very encouraging. And that's just in two weeks since Carbon Unbound. So it's been a, a crazy period in the in the CDR world. The Airbus purchase of 400,000 tons was like by far the biggest. And now it's been like fairly broken. So that's great. The actors that are buying now, um, they have been active before, like JP Morgan have been buying some tons uh, and Microsoft, of course, for several years. So they're not like new buyers. Uh, so still the ones that have yet gotten a bit more experience that dares to do these kind of larger purchases. And so that that's one one observation. But of course, that that there are companies willing to put serious amounts of money and not just kind of... Um, small testing testing budgets or something like that but actually real like business affecting maybe uh, although these are huge companies with like a, a lot, very very large amount of, of profit so um they are the ones that can pay but it's also interesting to to note that uh, the, the companies in frontier microsoft and jp morgan are all these kind of uh, high profit per ton companies we did an analysis last year looking at sort of the ability to pay uh, with carbon gap and seeing that there are different types of companies depending on the carbon intensity and also the, the profit per ton and banks, uh, insurance companies, software companies, uh, tech companies often have like $10,000, $100,000 in some cases in profit per ton that they emit and then buying carbon removal at a cost of a few hundred pounds, a few hundred dollars per ton. It's feasible. So it, it is great to see this, this group uh, start taking uh, that role and but we need a lot more of them to do it uh, and especially if we want to have this kind of wide playing field of many different organizations uh, many different solutions yeah. i think that was my favorite tidbit from the conference the per emission uh calculation you talked about because it really does bring home how mm -hmm. limiting in some ways at the current prices it is for most companies to do carbon removal right if you Think of it as their profit per emission gives you a whole different perspective. Yeah, um, but everyone can contribute some. Like you have to get rid of the "I'm going to offset all my my emissions" mindset. So right. um, you, you could buy carbon removal like for one percent of your your emissions, or like just get started. I think we have to hammer in the narrative that all companies have to contribute to financing climate. It's going to be very different levels. Like so, a big emitter is going to use hopefully their money internally to to transform their business. But they also need carbon removal in the future and, and other climate solutions. So it should be putting some amount of money into that today. And it should be sort of default expectation of all companies that should contribute to, yeah, climate solutions in general, not just CDR, also outside their own version. Yeah, from your mouth to like God's ear. I don't know. <laughs> um, I So... You've also been active recently on some online discussions about enhanced rock weathering. You know, um, it was in in response to a paper that came that came out, I think, from the Carbon Drawdown Initiative. If I'm getting the title right, so can you just give us an overview of the current, as you would understand it, state of the science of ERW's effectiveness, and and how should you know folks listening to this call think about it as they work through all the different, you know 
uncertainties of, of these different CDR uh, techniques. So enhanced rock weathering, I think, is, uh, has a lot of potential. Like it can be done at massive scale, and it's the Earth's natural way of, of removing CO two from excess CO two from the atmosphere. What is lacking is kind of um, evidence on, from the field studies on exactly uh, how, how it works, how fast, and how much, and also how to measure it. Where kind of models. Uh, where you, you you're relying on on the results that you had in, in labs uh, have been shown to be hard to replicate those results in the real world and it's more tricky than might have been expected to actually measure the signal um, of of the rock weathering doesn't mean that it's not happening but it means that we need to have we need to do more work on on measuring it in the field to be able to say how much how fast um, and also to be to be sure 100 sure that that it does work in, in in sort of human time scales and there's a lot of things happening when you put rock into soil and where there's a you know a lot of other organisms and and um, you you know a lot about that from <laughs> from the work that you do even if it's not enhanced rock weathering so it, it, buyers i think uh, could still be supporting that of course and we need more money into all solutions but we have to be uh, and it's related to the certifying certification question right like we have to be uh, nuanced about how we communicate that support. Uh, I don't think you should say that, like, oh, I offset all my all of my emissions with this, um, because because you, there's still a lot of uncertainty. So we could say with we're, we're supporting deployments that uh, increase the knowledge about how enhanced rock weathering works, and we, we're trying it out and slowly at, at larger scale. Um, and we're going to support Inplanet with, with a purchase and uh, really aim to 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 deepen the knowledge about how to how to measure it and and how to do it in the best way um but what i don't think we should do is just start putting hundreds of thousands of tons of rock on fields uh, where this is not um done to enhance the the knowledge really it's just done for deployment so that's that's a nuance that i think is important yeah i mean i wouldn't want to do that anyway until we understand the impacts like beyond carbon right like what are the biological impacts of hundreds of thousands of tons too right i don't yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's done with we, we know we can do liming for example field right. so putting rock on field is like there's a lot of knowledge about that but it depends on what rock and some rocks are very safe they don't have trace metals such but yeah. how much like you couldn't like cover the land in rock but um yeah of course we, there's there's other questions that that you might need to to answer as well, depending on especially depending on what rock you're using for sure. Yeah, sometimes I feel like we get so in such a like mindset of carbon removal, we lose the broader potential impacts. Yeah, but there's a lot of potential for co-benefits as well. Yep. Uh, with the rock, so oh. generally a positive thing. But I always have a little anxiety. I have to admit. <laughs> mm. um, so I want to end on a positive note, Robert, like you obviously enjoyed the conference. I really enjoyed the conference. Um, what are some things inspirational or something that you took away that made you feel good about the future of carbon removal? So seeing all the different people working with different solutions, and it's something we saw on this, this call for proposal as well. And just compared to a, a few years ago, um, you can really see how there's people that jumped into kind of labs starting to do hard tech that they're trying out new things um, and people that sort of 
heard about carbon removal, saw that it was a, a necessarily part of the solution, and and then you know got their hands dirty trying to 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 create new solutions for this. And not just the people who work on on hard tech. We, we see a lot of innovation in, in other fields as well, and people coming from really diverse places, like with with different type of educational background and, and different parts of the world. Uh, we see now uh, Octavia Carbon becoming a, a direct air capture manufacturer in, in Kenya, and we have a storage cell as well, um, and, and seeing this spread across the world um, with so many different ideas and people. I think that's that's really super encouraging. It's not a small clique of people sitting in like one part of the world working on one type of solution. It's really becoming this this global industry with like so many different ideas and uh, pathways. So that's super cool. Well, thank you, Robert, for joining us. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm glad we could finally get you onto Carbon Removal Newsroom. I really appreciate your thoughts and insights. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of the show, so I'm really glad to be on it. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.